You're listening to an EWS Fresh Research Unit. Here, a summary and review are made to major scientific articles covering the sports psychology and learning domains. Your host delivers the best models and research experiences in order to enhance your athletic game at several levels. Get in a coffee space and appreciate this one. Hi there, welcome to EWS. My name is Gonçalo Marques and I'm very glad to present this first episode from the Fresh Research series. And with this one, we collect two birds with one stone. This means I will address both topics in psychology and motor learning in just one model, one reference. So for that, I may start by asking you, have you ever felt you get to a plateau in your level in sports? Would you like to actualize or improve your accuracy in some shots? Maybe you get stuck in some technical execution sometime. Or further yet, maybe you are starting to learn a new skill that you find is out of your reach. Either way, Gabriel Wolf and Rebecca Leuthwaite bring you a model presented in their 2016 article that shows a theoretical bibliographical review of some key psychological and social aspects related to motor learning and physical performance. Together, they form what is called optimizing performance through intrinsic motivation and attention for learning, which interestingly creates the acronym OPTIMAL. Indeed, I say it is an optimal frame for the betterment of one's skills. And the best news is that there are several and simple ways an athlete and coaches can start to implement them with that time in mind. The article covers an extensive collection of topics that are associated with motor learning from previous studies. It lays out on tools that can be effective for an improvement of diverse physical and technical executions. Plus, it gives a glimpse of adequate ways to confront practice moments, the before mental moments, and of reflecting upon what has been done, the after mental moments. A primary concern the authors have, and a wish of many athletes for that matter, is the learning of how to bring about the coordinated or skilled control of complex movement, for which the quality of movement execution is of sheer importance. Overall, it is striking how easily performance and learning across various task domains can be affected, either positively or negatively, by performers' expectancies, the degree of control they sense, and the locus of focus, which are the three main components we address here. Just to note that this article have no experiment or specific goals, as it is a review of existing literature. Anyway, the authors combine on a clever model the data collected from various studies that tried to encounter the conditions that make people learn more effectively and perform better. Some of these will be presented here but very succinctly, without much background or other details, just for the sake of not getting too long or scattered. And another important note is that any type of claims that you seem that I make, I always point out to the studies. So the references will be on the original post and I will not say it for the sake of audio friendly for you. So for opening this up, let's start by laying some concise highlights from it. First, enhancing the person's expectancies of good results tend to improve performance quality and motor learning. 
Second, when a person feels more autonomy going to execute something, the more efficient the learning is and the better the performance. On the majority of cases and circumstances, having an external focus, not a bodily or internal one, works better on the performance at various levels. And the way instructions and feedback are directed to athletes or learners of some sort are very important for the results and potential developments attained. These topics point to the main aspects that make the whole of the optimal model, which I will develop just next. We will go along things like expecting success or failure, flexibility of choice, modeling, perceived task difficulty, and comments on performance. First, to make some sense from all of this, let me succinctly explain the theory. Optimal was built concerning many scientific articles, as I said, that were published regarding some psychological aspects involved in motor learning. The aspects included on the Optimal framework are around motivation and attention. More specifically, the degree of autonomy, the polarization of expectancies in the face of some task or game, and the FOXI, or in other words, the localization of focus when executing a movement or on a task. In turn, the way these characteristics emerge on an individual learning a new task or performing in his sport will either hinder or promote better learning. On the same token, many other metrics of performance are impacted, for example, maximum force, accuracy, reaction times, and positioning of the body, as some results I will share will show. The three main aspects, again, expectancies, autonomy, and type of focus, are very much malleable from the effect of instructions, results, feedbacks, and other aspects like self-efficacy. And for those who aren't familiar, self-efficacy is a big concept in research that, in short, means the belief one has in the amount of capability he has to execute effectively in the task proposed. Also, autonomy and expectancies can interact with each other, and the correspondent feelings are very variable, depending on previous performances, results, and external circumstances. Plus, there is usually a positive effect among these aspects, meaning they become more optimized with next attempts, when good results and feedback occur, while it also tends to be verified a tendency for external focus of execution. The inverse also occurs, but I will unpack those elements further ahead. In this part, for those who are just listening, there is an image schematic of the optimal model on EWS website that Gabriel Wolf, one of the authors, have sent to me, so I will leave the link in the description if you want to take a look. Well, this may be starting to become quite some terms to grasp, so let's clearly define them. Starting by autonomy. Very much related to the core need of autonomy proposed by Desi and Ryan, in their often-referred self-determination theory, which also includes competence and relatedness, but more on that in other occasion, than on these two components. Autonomy, it's a need to actively participate in determining one's own behavior. As the name implies, it is the degree of autonomy a person feels while performing or going to perform something. It touches on a desire for humans to be casual agents of one's own actions and be in harmony with one's integrated self. For the expectancies, 
this isn't referring to other unrelated expectations from the task like social ones, neither to expectations of what wrong could occur during the task. Expectancies here refer more to a range of forward-directed, anticipatory or predictive cognitions or beliefs about what is about to occur and the result that will be produced. Enhanced expectancies then mean the anticipation of rewarding properties that are significant for the fulfillment of needs and desires. This also includes those that are likely to satisfy a successful outcome on his terms and the psychological need of competence. The hypothesis for this to be associated to higher quality performances is that self-efficacy is increased here and that we humans, again, tend to act more efficiently when future prospects provide a sense that positive outcomes will occur. With that in mind, it's likely that we reunite more resources of various sorts to bring these positive outcomes to fruition. And as for that third element, the type of focus, well, while performing a task, a person can focus on internal factors or external factors. Particularly, for the internal part, they talk about having a self-focus. This is the one where the individual pays attention to the body sensations and imagine what to do with his body, the exact movements to produce. As for the external part, they talk about a focus on the task goal. And here, the individual takes a stance where the attention is on what is going on outside, on what needs to happen to eat intended targets. There's also a tendency to automaticity of movement. Usually, there are thoughts that can speed motor learning, focusing on the intended movement effect to produce, for example, or slow it, focusing on movement coordination elements during execution. So overall, you get the sense that there are motivational and attentional elements that are somewhat within our control and have an effect on the results we have in any kind of physical activities. It's a theory, then, that takes into account the social, cognitive, affective and motor nature of motor behavior. By knowing this, teammates and coaches, even in a simple manner, through instructions and feedback and dealing with the logistics, can serve the betterment of learning and performance, both in the moment and consistently in the future. Furthermore, the authors give some explanations for the positive effects to occur that go beyond psychological and meaning-making attributes in the process. They focus also on biological processes that happen under different conditions in studies. They provide in this article evidence of physiological data that facilitates better performance and not-so-friendly data that hinders performance. Particularly, there is a focus with dopaminergic networks, which appears to have a significant impact on the quality of motor executions. This is aside the reward system that you may have heard about, associated with dopamine. These are more complex and another area that I will not go long on this episode. Because maybe it would get boring and, well, while I'm not still able to dive on these neurobiological explanations, let's just trust that science in this field has been evolving and showing evidence in favor of neuroplasticity and better understandings of mechanisms in the brain. 
So, with that being said, let's present some concrete evidence and examples that show some tasks and the respective results in support of these directions. And stay tuned, because they are very short, singularly, and some of them are funny. Again, keep in mind that these directions, in simple terms, are the more enhanced expectancies one has in the face of a task, the better one is going to perform on it over time. Second, the higher the autonomy provided on or felt by the individual, the higher will be the motor performance and learning. And third, the less an internal focus during a task is embodied, and the more an external is present, the better will be performance and learning again. An initial obvious factor that play a role in influencing one's felt expectancies is feedback, both from others and from oneself. First, it is shown that motor learning is enhanced by positive feedback, even pieces that are false, suggesting more effective performance or greater improvement than average compared with negative feedback, indicating poorer performance relative to others or even with no social comparative feedback, which are the control conditions in the studies. For example, a study showed greater tolerance for sustained effort in a continuous force production task, increased self-efficacy, and lower perceived exertion as a function of positive normative feedback compared with both negative feedback and control conditions, indicating efficiency even on wider levels. There are studies that found several other appealing effects of positive normative feedback. It has been shown to increase perceived competence, reduce concerns and nervousness about performance and ability, and increase satisfaction with performance and motivation to learn, and even increased positive effect. In contrast, negative feedback conditions seem to trigger thoughts about the self and resulting in self-regulatory activities that hinder the learning of the primary task. Another thing is the way individuals are instructed to perform, what is ascribed for them to do or play in a role. And along that, the how have a significant impact. And this is amazing if we think that just a simple change in words previous to a task can surpass the consistency of natural abilities people have or what they train. For example, by providing two randomly assigned groups with different criterion for good performance in a golf-putting task led to a significant difference in accuracy. This was in a study from 2016 where non-golfers with instructions that putting within larger concentric circles surrounding a target would constitute good golf putts had better accuracy to the center of the target than the group with the higher standard or, in other words, more conservative, the smaller circle instruction definition of success. All other conditions remained the same, and 24 hours later, on retention and transfer tests, this group also performed better. Another interesting thing regards the building of confidence in a simple way. For example, instilling the belief in individuals that they are likely to perform well in a certain category of situations, for example, with pressure, can result not only in a higher perceived situational ability, but also in enhanced performance per se. This means that suggestions, again, that one is doing good or is able to do well, don't have to be related to one's motor performance per se, 
and this was concretely shown in a study from the same authors and a colleague in 2012, where enhancing performers' expectancies for generic performance under pressure with a previous positive comment increased their throwing accuracy relative to the others in the control condition. Hereafter, they touch on conceptions of ability. This is a tremendous realm that influences performance, quality, learning and attitudes to those. In short, what those mean are the views a person has about what constitutes success and what is definable as having good or bad qualities for the completion of tasks. In other words, in sports, which skills constitute a good player and how they are built. The main component which is critical within these views is the degree of belief a person has on abilities reflecting fixed capacities versus being malleable, amenable to change with practice. This is a big part of Carol Dweck's work on self-theories and mindset. I recommend you to take a look if you are not familiar with that. It's such a big topic that EWS stresses upon. This, in turn, will affect not only one's motivation to practice, but also influence performance and learning more directly, which is the subject of this fresh research unit. And still on this environment part, it can tweak these capabilities and beliefs and attitudes into good fruition. An example, starting with little children, they were affected in a study just by the wording of a small feedback. In 2007, the study with four-year-olds who performed a drawing task had a group of them receiving a feedback implying that performance reflected an inherent ability, with the experiment here saying, you are a good drawer. For others, the feedback was directed to the effort invested in a particular picture. For example, you did a good job drawing, the instruction. When confronted with mistakes later, children who had received feedback that induced an entity theory, also known as fixed mindset, as opposed to an incremental view, also known as growth mindset, showed a diminished motivation and more negative self-evaluations. So, this shows an impactful manner of how these views, independently of skill level, can influence so many variables that will then reverberate on training and final results. But this is with children. What about adults? In 2009, also the authors of Optimal examined whether instructionally induced conceptions of ability would have a more permanent effect. The learning of a balanced task, evaluated with a stemilometer, was indeed enhanced by instructions depicting performance on the task as an acquirable skill, rather than something that reflected an inherent ability for balance. The acquirable skill group showed greater improvement in balance performance across time. In future trials, they worked better than the other group, as well as greater automaticity in the control of their movements the, for example, frequency of movement adjustments. Also of interest was that control group participants without ability-related instructions demonstrated similar performance and learning as the inherent ability group and were, therefore, less effective and efficient than participants who viewed the task as a learnable skill. 
In a similar study, the authors measured an increased nervousness before and while balancing and thus a bigger degree of apprehension approaching the task hindered the learning process. And this is amazing because overall I think many people have this notion that balance is an inherent skill that you cannot make so much about it. So this is incredible, another case for that. Still on this, more specifically on building that confidence or expectancy part, there is a considerable amount of evidence showing that suggestions given to participants, previous and after the task, that they can do well because of certain motor or personal abilities, can enhance performance results and real learning compared with control conditions. For example, in one study, Participants were informed before practicing a novel balance task that active and experienced persons like them typically did well on that task. Compared with not receiving this information, the control group, this simple statement resulted in increased self-efficacy and superior learning. Thus, the general comment on a peer group's performance presumably made the novel and relatively challenging balance task appear less daunting and alleviated concerns older adults may have had, elevating self-efficacy relative to the control group, and performance and learning were also facilitated this way. So, to wrap up the expectancies part, these appear to serve a task-readying function, and without them, as the authors observe, we would be merely reactive and not proactive without predictive mechanisms that prepare us for action. More so, studies indicate that expectancies can influence working memory, long-term memory and attentional capture. Human beings appear to have a propensity to prefer positive information about themselves and their performances, and that can have beneficial effects on motivation and consequential learning and performance. The same goes to external facilitators of self-efficacy, task interest, satisfaction and reduced concerns about one's abilities. A further note which is connected with the, foc with the locus of focus pointed next is that low personal expectations for a positive outcome may activate these internal and behavioral conflicts or act in the manner of a self-invoking trigger. Again, this is better explained in the further section. And moving on, speaking about autonomy. The paper starts by laying out that besides the autonomy, psychological need being satisfied by exerting control over the environment, a biological necessity can also be present. Pointing to various studies, the authors leave explicit the idea that we usually prefer an option leading to choice than an option that doesn't, suggesting here the existence of an inherent reward with the exercise of control per se, even if the choices are sometimes irrelevant in the context of the primary task, which logically lead to more autonomy. Moreover, this segment is about communication, the one aspect I think can be most usable. It shows evidence talking about the ways in which task instructions are worded, that is, whether the language is autonomy-supportive or more controlling by the superiors. Autonomy supportive has been shown to influence motor learning in a better fashion. For example, in a study where learners were given control over the use of physical assistive devices on balance tasks, learning was enhanced relative to the externally controlled use of those devices, the yoked group. 
More interestingly, in a previous similar study that presented the same task, there was no findings of any advantages in using those poles, those assistive devices, for the learning of the task. And this is amazing because it goes beyond the placebo effect as an explanation for this. This suggests that control over the presence of an assistive device can have a beneficial effect on learning, even if that device in and of itself is relatively ineffective. With a similar logic, a study used the premise that observational learning from a role model is an effective way of improving motor skills. So here, participants practiced a basketball jump shot and a video of a skilled model could either be requested by them or was provided to them at the respective times during practice. After seven days, when performing again, the group that could choose, also known as more autonomy, showed superior movement form compared with the yoked group, those that were imposed the video. And still regarding the promotion of autonomy or not, this was also achieved by another two manners. First, through the delivering of a completely unrelated possibility of choice, for example, the color of golf balls. And secondly, through instructional language. More examples are given in the paper, but this is just to point out that Task instructions where there's more autonomy supportive words versus controlling or imposing ones, even if totally unrelated to the task, have been shown to be positively associated with motor learning too. Therefore, independent of which factor the learner is given control over, the learning benefits appear to be very robust and generalizable to different tasks, age groups and populations. If you are interested, you can contact us or comment below for more information. Anyhow, I've left also in this website some images of graphics showing some significant and relevant results. And for last in this part of autonomy, it is interesting to think about some reasons the authors laid out for the autonomy support exerting its positive influences. Again, I will not develop those, just pointing out. First, it has been suggested that a more active involvement of the learner in the learning process promotes deeper processing of relevant information. Two, it encourages error estimation. Three, autonomy fosters the use of self-regulation strategies. And four, giving learner control over the practice conditions might be, in a general sense, more motivating. I put references in the text between brackets for each one of these pieces. Moreover, other references to higher task interest and motivation to learn have been found, which I don't make reference here. As for the third element, the locus of focus. The overall premise is that when a person is about to perform a task and during the movements, she would have a better payoff if the attention is directed to the intended effects of the movement or to external relevant elements, instead of concentrating on what to do exactly with her body. A potent explanation that they give for this to occur is from the attentional focus effect that has been explained with the constrained action hypothesis. Again, the reference is between brackets. According to this, an internal focus induces a conscious type of control, causing individuals to constrain their motor system by interfering with automatic control processes. And evidence supports this direction, that an internal focus indeed leads to a constrained motor system, or freezing, of the degrees of freedom, whereas an external focus seems to free those degrees of freedom and provide more efficiency. 
Examples of this are encountered in swing movements and distance of ball in golf, shorter reaction times, and precision and height in gymnast jumps. About the logic and importance of maintaining an external focus, the authors provide a short and fun example showing the ecological importance of it. This comes directly from this paper, and it goes something like this. What does the mountain goat about to jump across a chosen focus on? Presumably, it focuses on the other side of the chosen, to which it is jumping. Its motor system seems to know what it has to do to achieve the desired outcome. It is hard to imagine other animals moving affirmatively for food or survival with a constant internal conversation regarding how to move their limbs most effectively. Likely, they pursue their goals with purpose and action, unimpaired by digressions into self-reflection or concerns about how to coordinate their muscles and joints. Instructions directing attention away from one's body parts or away from self and to the intended movement effect have consistently been found to have an enhancing effect on performance and learning. In other words, the default mode network is shut down or reduced. And this is a normal and key functional network within all of us, responsible for autobiographical processes, being mostly active when a person is not focused on the outside world, and one may be daydreaming in the default mode network or mind-wandering. Other functions of this include long-term planning and self-referential thought, and is even called by some as a task-negative network. And just to give that taste of the neurobiological part associated with these practices, we have that when those three main factors are present and operate well and simultaneously, we see critical dopamine influences. First, this hormone gets active in a way that synaptogenic processes occur more effectively. This is the processes that produce new connections between neurons in our nervous system and also, coincidentally, more robust connections including long-term potentiation at the cellular level and the enlargement of the spiny processes on mediospiny neurons are guaranteed, which will facilitate new neural connections, by the way. Dopamine, in its motivational role, also contributes to the consolidation of motor memories when present during and after motor practice. As they say, an external focus on the intended movement effect seems to enhance all aspects of performance, independent of skill level, task, age or ability, or lack thereof. And on this part I leave a schematic image that is great coming from this paper showing two things. First, a vicious cycle, which is when one feels less autonomy, when one has lower expectancies about the results to be achieved, and when one has a more increased internal focus, then a more increased self-focus will be on and the less focus on the task goal at hand will produce lower motor performance and learning, which in turn reinforces this negative cycle. And the virtuous one is the opposite, when one feels more autonomy, when one has enhanced expectancies and a more external focus, the better the performance and the learning will be, which in turn will reinforce this positive cycle. And this brings to mind the idea of flow, and with the prospect of flow may come a kind of automaticity in movement and decisions. And it makes sense that when one turns down the default mode network, that this state of automaticity takes into place. Some call it autopilot mode. One is functioning optimally at the peak of his capabilities, trusting completely on muscle memory and previous work done.
And this, I think, just happens because one has so much experience. Experts are able to do modifications anytime, meaning they are very sensitive and aware of what's going on with their bodies, so they can adjust for more effectiveness. They move with constant surveillance, a good one, constantly engaged, and do so without any effort to think beyond that. Anyhow, let's be reminded that in order, in some moments of a game, for example on intervals or unexpected turnout of events, experts may want to think further and deliberate. The adaptability here is on the importance of monitoring and anticipating the game as it unravels, in order to adjust to each circumstance efficiently. Imagine the various problems, obstacles that can arise during a match. Having the ability to modify the performance as necessary, rather than just going through prepared and dominant motions, is the bright picture of going with the flow, quote-unquote. Giving another similar perspective to this, would you rather be submitted for a surgery where a surgeon goes by step-by-step step in prescribed pro protocols, or a surgeon that is super attuned to what's happening and also sensitive to what might happen differently and know how to maneuver safely then? Maybe the best option you prefer is the one with both sides, for sure. And the same logic applies to experienced pilots, for example, riding a plane. Would you rather want one that knows the protocols to take off, ride and land effectively, but also one that can respond well when visibility is low or turbulence is higher, for example? According to Anders Ericsson, an expert in learning and peak performance research, the optimized state is when things run so smoothly and actions are so aligned and well executed that flow is on and good for superior performance, while at the same time the performer is ready and sensitive to other possibilities. You can see clearly these mechanisms in action in this action sport which I leave a link called Fresco Ball. Just a short note to finish before jumping into the quotes. The authors still call into attention other kind of factors that play a significant role in motor learning. For example, variable versus constant practice, or random versus blocked practice, perceived task difficulty, observation and self-modeling, and controlled practice, positive effect, and even perceptive tweaks, like optical illusions. So there's many, many things to unpack on this paper, and this is just a short review besides this being a long episode. But this is also why this paper is great to enter, to get in touch and extract value from this field. We can publish more about those topics on the future, in fresh research units, and in our interviews. If you're interested in some of them, let us know in the comments. Regarding the quotes, let's start it. Regarding an overall view of what was brought here, the authors wondered in the beginning, Quote, we speculate that enhanced expectancies and an external focus propel performers, cognitive and motor systems in productive forward directions and prevent backsliding into self and non-task focused states. Expected su success presumably breeds further success and helps consolidate memories. End quote. As for the phenomena of choking under pressure and flow states, other two big topics that can be related with the type of focus, the authors mentioned, quote, 
in the former case, concerns, worries or nervousness in challenging situations can result in a downward spiral of poor performance, ensuing conscious control attempts and self-regulatory activities and further performance decrements. In the latter case, high confidence in one's abilities can produce the effortlessness, automaticity and task focus seen in effective high-level performance. End quote. Another one around this. Quote, Prospectively, expectancies for personal performance appear to serve a task-readying function. We would be merely reactive and not proactive without predictive and probability-based mechanisms that prepare us for action. End quote. And a concise definition of self-efficacy. Quote, Self-efficacy is an individual's situation-specific confidence or perspective sense that he or she will be able to effect the actions that bring about task outcomes. Just to scratch the surface of aspects that influence one's expectancies and may build self-efficacy and effective learning over time, the authors tell that there are quote, effects of positive feedback, including social comparative feedback and self-modeling. Other studies have provided evidence of improved performance or learning by, for instance, reducing perceived task difficulty, defining success deliberately or in positive normative terms, alleviating learners' concerns or influencing how ability is conceptualized. End quote. An accolade for this reference to Dweck and colleagues' work on mindset, Gabriel and Rebecca tell, quote, People who believe that motor abilities are relatively fixed, so-called entity theorists, tend to be more concerned with proving their ability and they perceive errors or negative feedback as a threat to the self, because they reveal a limited capacity or lack of ability. In contrast, people who assume that abilities are changeable or malleable, the so-called incremental theorists, tend to focus on more learning and improving their performance on a given task. They are less threatened by feedback indicating errors or poor performance and they confront difficulties by increasing their effort. We leave you here in the post with another image regarding an overall view of the predictions of the optimal theory. If you want to check those, they are at ewsport.eu. As for applications and further suggestions, the first and I think main lesson here overall regarding more attentional focus being external and the automaticity part is to trust our reflexes and motor knowledge, trust the numerous processes being activated beyond conscious control and trust the countless trainings you had in the past. I think this is of relevance to individuals on a very wide range. Knowing these principles can be very useful not only for taking up or mastering a sport or learning to play a musical instrument, but also for relearning basic motor control after, for example, a neurological damage, on learning to drive a new vehicle, on active gaming, or even using surgical instruments. This is also a great reminder for coaches to pay attention to more of these psychological aspects in training. Often, instructors disregard an enhancement of learners' expectancies, stressing too much only on the technical side. Hence, it's possible they do not recognize and support the need for autonomy and induce an internal focus of attention. Direct consequences of such an approach would be low learner self-efficacy, 
little or no positive effect, increased self-focus, and limited capacity to focus on the task goal, all the things that I went along in this episode. Moreover, indirect consequences resulting from poor performance or little performance improvement, and learners' perceptions of effort, by the way, might lead to further decreases in self-efficacy and positive effect, increased self-focus, etc., essentially resulting in that vicious cycle and less-than-optimal learning I've pointed before also. Ultimately, this scenario may lead to a lack of interest in practicing or learning new skills and perhaps activity avoidance. A small limitation that I want to address is on the measurement of dopamine activity that is also more challenging than some other biochemical substances, for example cortisol, because it cannot presently be assessed with salivary or other less invasive methods than PET, positron emission technology. Other than that, I found this paper very concise, very well structured, and so I don't point anything else. But an important side note I must have is that, again, on this audio, I don't tell the original studies from where comes the data that I present, but in the original post, between brackets, along the, test, the text, they are properly seated. If you want me or any other member to address any particular topic or psychological aspects that touch on what we presented here, let us know and comment or leave a personal message. It would be very appreciated to get a sense of what are some needs and wishes the athlete population have. I should also say that an interview with Gabriel and Rebecca, the authors, is very much possible to happen in the near future, where we can go over these things and dive and talk about other relevant studies and psychological processes that weren't addressed here. We will leave the link in the description below when available. Whether you are an athlete, coach or professional in any other mechanic field, I hope you take good advantage of what is laid out here and take a look at the post, or the timestamps if you want to review something in particular, and share it with someone you think can benefit from Optimal. Until next time, take care. You've listened to a Fresh Research Unit. If you want further reviews about this one, go over the original post for more. You can also enter the discussion by commenting or contacting the team at ewsport.eu See you on the next one!